Our text for today is James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. And hear now the living word of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let us come to our Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you for wisdom and we come to you for grace as we aspire to understand this text. We pray that, Lord, that you would help us to understand the glorious truths and the privilege that we have as people, as children, to come to you in faith, in prayer. So, Father, we pray that you would bless our time together and give us a confidence, Lord, that we can come to you in prayer in time of our need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as you have already observed, this section is about prayer. We see here the theme of prayer is the focus. And if you observe carefully, you will see the word prayer is mentioned seven times. So we will look at that in verse 13. It says, let him pray. Verse 14, let the elders pray. Verse 15, the prayer of faith. Verse 16, pray for one another. Verse 16, at the end, the prayer of the righteous person and so on. James is exhorting his beloved brothers to pray. He wants to show them the importance of prayer. And he wants to give them the exhortation to prayer. And he wants to build their confidence in prayer by giving them an example. Prayer is so important in the Christian life that James wants to end this letter with this exhortation. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Ultimately, there is no... No better index into a person's spiritual state and condition than one's prayer. In other words, if you want to check a person's spiritual health, examine his prayer life. Even last week, as we saw that it is God who is sovereign, not us. We are to remember God's promise of judgment and have our faith in that and his coming. And then we are also to remember how is it that God answers prayers. So for our structure and for our points, James' flow of thought here is that we see in verses 13, he exhorts the individual believer to prayer. That's, that will be our first point. He exhorts the individual believer to prayer. And if you're an individual Christian, you ought to be a person to pray in all circumstances of life. 
And then in the second section, then in verses 14 and 15, he talks about the prayers of the elders of the church in a particular circumstance. And then the third, we will see that in verses 16 to 18, he broadens the whole discussion, not just to the prayer of an individual Christian, not just an instruction to pray for the leaders of the church, but the prayer here is for the entire church to pray for one another. That's what we will see. The first comes from verses 13 and 14. Every Christian is called to pray. What we see here is that prayer is God-glorifying response in every situation in our lives. This naturally flows from verses 7 to 12. James has been encouraging these suffering Christians to patiently wait for the day of the Lord. And now in verse 13 onwards, we see what they ought to be doing while they are patiently suffering and waiting for the day of the Lord. James asks here three questions. James' first question, is there anyone among you suffering? Is there any, anyone here who is cheerful? Is there anyone who is sick? And if you think of these questions, here at Grace, probably every one of us here will raise their hands saying, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm cheerful. And yes, I am sick. You see, suffering and cheerfulness are the two ends of a human experience. It's like a spectrum of human experiences. And maybe some of you here will be like, I am really neither. I don't find myself suffering this morning, and I'm frankly not very cheerful, but does it mean then we don't have anything to do? What really is the point is that wherever you see yourself in the spectrum of human emotions, whether you're all the way down at suffering or all the way out there with a glad-hearted joy, or anywhere in the middle, prayer is the Christian response to human experience. Prayer is what Christians do in every situation of their lives. So let's see what James says we should do. If anyone among you is suffering, what should he do? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He should sing songs. In other words, sing your prayers. Sing your praise to the Lord. Is anyone sick? Call for the elders so that they can pray. Because we have already learned this in chapter 1, that every circumstance of our life is come through the good gift of God. It is according to God's sovereign and good purposes. That is what we hear in our call to worship in all of these circumstances, where Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And in all circumstances, we are to pray and this is the will of God. And so praying during our circumstances is a deeply Christian thing to do because this is so much in line with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, and his sacrifice on the cross, we are not allowed to enter the throne room and tell God what we think. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we come into the throne room of God. And we as human beings speak to God and he listens. Ever wondered why we pray in Jesus' name? Children, ever wondered why mommy and daddy taught you to pray in Jesus' name? Because only through faith in Jesus, you can call upon the name of God and he will listen. 
We don't come into the throne room of God, not on our own and our credit, but because in the name of and on the merit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let me ask you this, friend. Is praying for you a natural Christian response? Is this your natural Christian response of your heart while you are suffering? I'm not asking if this is what you intellectually agree upon. I'm asking you, is this what you do naturally? Is this how you relate to God? Now tell me, when was the last time when you were cheerful and you naturally praise God for that time? Now let's be honest, when we are going through suffering, what is the natural thing to do? It might be either go into an immediate shock or in a sense of helplessness, or we tend to start thinking to find the reasons for our suffering, or we will just lash out at our suffering in anger or the person who has caused that suffering. You experience some setback at work, some suffering, some uncertainty in your plans, someone who is standing in our way, and our first inclination is not to pray to the Lord, but to get back at that person to set things right, set things even, give them back what they deserve. But James is saying, no, turn to God in prayer. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And even though we don't lash out, we don't just silently bear or endure it with a sense of resignation in our hearts, let this take its course. I'm not liking it, but I'm going to just drudge through this. I know some of you who deal with your circumstances in this way. And I confess, I often deal with it in this way, which then I must repent and go to God in prayer. We as Christians don't have to go through our suffering with a grim determination, my friends. Our God is near. He will listen to our prayers, and He is at the door ready to come. So my brother, my sister, yes, we are called to endure, but we are called to endure with also a clear hope that God will one day set all things right. And in the meantime, we are to cry out, to raise up all kinds of prayers, laments, and praise. But notice here, we are called to pray not only when we are suffering or sick, but when we are cheerful. Now, if you are honest again with yourself, when things are doing fine, we have no issues, no trials, no suffering in our lives. Do we find ourselves praising God for our circumstances? Why is that the case? One thing I am sure is because we forget God when everything is going fine with our lives. We wake up and the plans are going in the way that we wanted. Kids at home are obedient and compliant. Traffic is smooth, no crazy drivers on the road. Boss and colleagues are surprisingly good and are in an amicable mood. Work is pleasant, nothing is surprising, and you generally had a good day at the end of the day. The chances are at the end of the day, we might still not turn to God in praise. And why is the case? It's because we are generally forgetful people. And sometimes we think of ourselves and assume that we deserve it. 
And when suddenly something goes wrong at the workplace, that is when we immediately turn to God or to others asking for prayers. Have you noticed this in your own life? I have. And why do we do that? Why when God smooths out the road and the life is going steadily for weeks, for months, for years, why do we just give a prayer a minimal thought? When the road gets bumpy, why do we immediately turn to God? I think it is because we think prayer is a kind of means to meet our end. Maybe we tend to think of prayer as asking for stuff. And that is it. There are many things to prayer. Just if we look at Psalms, we have wonderful examples of prayers and different kinds of prayers. There are adoration Psalms, confession Psalms, thanksgiving Psalms, and they are supplication Psalms. Why is it that we spend most of our lives spending our time in prayers of supplication? Yes, we do generally praise God and a bit of confession and a bit of thanksgiving, but most of our time is on asking this or asking that. And so, when there is nothing to ask for, we don't usually pray. But by James writing this spectrum of prayer, here is hinting that, is, that there is so much more to prayer than asking God what we need. There can be singing praises. James says the 150 Psalms in our Bible can show that there, are, there can be all kinds of things in prayer. Compared to the vast riches of what prayers can be in our Psalms, I think most of our prayer lives are dry, boring petitions and requests for what we need or our children's need or our family need or our friends need or our colleagues need. When was the last time you spent a significant amount of time just praising God for what he has done, for who he is, and not asking for anything? One practical way, my friends, you can grow in your prayer life is that next time you read your Psalms. Don't just read them. Figure out a way to imitate those Psalms. Meaning, when you read a Psalm, understand what the psalmist is saying, see how he is reminding himself of who God is and his character and how he puts his hope and trust in him. And then try and apply it to your own life considering the gospel of Christ and pray. Try and write your own prayer based on how the psalmist wrote the psalm. And commit yourself in doing this at least once a week and you will grow in your prayer life. It might not be as eloquent and beautiful as how the psalmist has written, but at least it will be good for your soul. That is what James exhorts here. Not just be Christians who submit bunch of petitions to God and see what he grants and what he doesn't, but to be Christians who pray in every circumstance, in every way. That is what James wants. And then he doesn't just stop there, but he also calls to the elders to pray. We will see that in the next second section. Now I must confess, this is a hard passage for me as I try and explain what is going on here. But one thing we can see is that the elders are called to pray for the sick. 
So in verse 14 and 15, James' focus changes. He's not talking about individual Christians, but he is referring to the elders of the church. And he says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, as you are hearing this, uh, you might be wondering, so is it wrong, Pastor, for, for us to pray for our needs? No, not really. We are called to pray for our needs. There is a room for that in James's letter. He says, if anyone among you is sick, pray. Go to God in prayer when you sense a need. God here, through James, prescribes a humbling path. Calling the elders is not the exclusion of going to medical professionals. Just as much as we get to a hospital for treatment when you are sick, James is saying you are to call men whom God has ordained over his church locally, to whom God has called to shepherd your souls. Call the elders. That is one of their functions. God says that is why I have given them to you. Now, in this context, we see that this sickness is severe. The elders of the church must be called to pray for the sick person. Maybe the sick person is not strong enough, at least in this case, to go to the elders. I don't think we are talking about a person who is sick with cold or flu or something like that. It seems that life and death are at stake. But do you see one that is clear? The elders of the church are called to pray for the sick. And how are they to pray? In the name of the Lord. Meaning, we as elders are speaking on behalf of the king. We are petitioning with the king's authority as messengers. And so, we as elders, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are saying only the things that we are confident that Jesus would say. This is not the focus of the passage, but what we see is that there is a plurality of elders in this passage. This is a local church, and James assumes that there are few elders, not just one elder, not just the one man of God who is specialized in praying for the sick and the one who is expert in healing the sick. And as we look more intently at this text, some questions will also rise up. Like, what is this anointing oil? What is this prayer of faith? What, is, what, what, what does confessing of sins have to do with any of this? And to make matters worse, through the last 2,000 years, this verse has been used and misused by everyone from the Roman Catholic Church to television faith healers. But before that, let's see what the oil is for. There are several ideas that have been presented by scholars what this oil is meant for and what the elders are doing when they are anointing somebody with oil. I think one thing we can say with confidence is that the elders are not doing something that is sacramental here. There is no such evidence as such, as preparation for death as the Catholics believe. Or in those days, oil was used medicinally. It could be that. But here, it doesn't seem like oil is used like somehow to cure the sickness. 
Rather, the consensus understanding is this oil is meant to be symbolic, consecrating it or setting it aside for God's purposes. And so here, this could have the, the sense of the elders coming and sort of setting someone, in this case, the sick person aside for special care from the Lord. This kind of instruction is used only here, and some have used it to say that if you are sick, this is how it needs to be done. You have the elders together and have the oil and they got to anoint you with it. Otherwise, your prayers for your health won't be heard. But we need to understand this is not an universal instruction that must be followed. Otherwise, God won't hear our prayers. Instead, it seems like this is one way for the elders to pray. And then what does sin have to do with this? Verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, the Bible has a great deal of connection of sickness with sin. And so, on the one hand, Jesus in a couple of the Gospels is very clear that not all sickness and ailments are caused due to sin. He's very clear about that. But he's also clear that some sickness is caused by sin. Even if you think back in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to some of those Christians in Corinth have died because of their persistent sin. That is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so what do we make of it? It is that God sometimes uses sickness and affliction to discipline his children of unrepentant sin. That is not to say that all sickness is caused because of sin. And it doesn't mean that you have allergies in the morning because you have cut someone in the line driving your car. You're not to rack your brains to figure out what God is punishing you for. It is not what that means. But it is to say that God sometimes uses it. And James is saying, if there, there was sin behind the sickness, then that sin, when the elders pray in faith, will be forgiven and the person will be healed. Then what does James mean, this verse, then the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. One thing is that saving here is a physical healing. He says, the Lord will raise him up, not talking about the end time resurrection of the person who's, who's going to die, but as raising him up of his sick bed. The Lord will heal this person. Does he mean if you have enough faith, a special kind of prayer, then God will heal? And if it doesn't happen, then it is your fault for not having enough faith when you pray? I mean, if you turn to any Christian TV channels, that is what you will get exactly. This is what they will say is the meaning of this passage. But if you look at the New Testament, there are plenty of examples of people not getting healed. The faith of the person seeming to prayer has nothing to do with it. Apostle Paul, for example, tells us that he prayed repeatedly for a certain thing, for a thorn in his flesh to be removed. And his prayers were not answered in the way he wanted. So he did not receive what he was asking for. Then in 2 Timothy, he says that he had to leave his friend. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Why did he have to leave? I'm sure he prayed for him. 
And, uh, and it was, in fact, Paul the apostle. But he had to leave him. And if it is all that prayer of faith and all that magical, why didn't Paul heal those people? There is a lot of sickness around Paul's life and around Paul's friends. And after looking at that, Paul is lacking in faith. So we have to understand that it doesn't mean based on the extent of faith, God will heal ultimately. What James is doing here is that he is just talking like Jesus. And Jesus sounds like this. James is just picking up the connection that Jesus constantly makes between faith and prayer and God's power to answer prayer. You can look back in the Gospels when Jesus talks about prayer and faith in Jesus and in the power of God to answer prayer. It often sounds just as absolute as James sounds here. If you do this, this will happen. Matthew 21, verse 21, we see that. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This sounds very absolute, right? We can see in other places, Matthew 17, John 14, we see Jesus connects prayer and faith all the time. And he talks about God's desire to answer his people when they pray. And this is like what James is talking about here when he's talking about prayer of faith. What he means that it is, if it is not a prayer done in faith, it is not prayer at all. And here is the thing, in all those places where Jesus sounds absolute, James also sounds absolute. But in all those places, there is a great theological context that God is sovereign. He determines how he will answer our prayers. And in fact, the very nature of faith is to trust him to do that and not to demand for him what he thinks is best. Meaning, he will hear us what you ask God in faith when you ask God in accordance with his sovereign will. We can see that clue in uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, where John the Apostle writes, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that, we, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Meaning our faith and trust is not in the certain outcome, but faith in the God who, in accordance with, with his will, will grant us what is good and best for us. Our faith is not in faith and in an outcome, but faith in a person, in God. No matter what the outcome is, it is to trust him to do what is best, to do what is in accordance with his will. There is this twofold promise, he says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. If sin is involved in any, he will be forgiven. James has already alluded to this in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, with the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And please make note, it is not the elders, 
not the oil, not even the prayer, not even the faith. But if you look at verse 15 carefully, it is who who heals? The Lord will raise him up. The answer to your prayer is not dependent on the amount of faith. It is on the power of your God. It is on the will of your God. It is not the amount of your faith. It is the object of your faith. Here and throughout the rest of New Testament. And then in verses 16 to 18, we see the next section. He broadens this appeal. Not just the leaders of the church are called to pray, but he says, confess the sins to one another and pray for each other. He says in verse 16, he makes that connection again between sickness and sin. But his point is that prayer is not just an individual spiritual discipline. It is also not just a specialized ministry for certain individuals or elders, but we as a church, you as members of Grace Church, are to be praying for each other regularly. The power is in the act of prayer, not specifically in the ministry of the elders or the person. And so the whole church is called to pray for one another, considering our sin. So James says in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think we can learn a couple of things from this. Our greatest sickness, our greatest suffering comes from our sin. Prayer and confession go hand in hand because God and sin don't. James says it is the prayer of the righteous man that has great power. Friends, that is good news and bad news. Listen to Proverbs chapter 15 verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. God listens to the prayer of the upright, and it is acceptable to him. And in verse 29 in Proverbs 15, he says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. This is such good news. God hears the prayer of the righteous, and the prayer of the righteous, it has great power. Do you see that in verse 16, great power? But the Bible teaches that there is no one who is righteous, and then emphatically Paul says, no, not one. If it is the prayer of the righteous that has great power with God, and if there is none righteous, then that is really a bad news in that same text. We see that. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, why there is none righteous? There is no one who is upright. Why? Because we are judged by God's law, and his law rightly condemns us. We are not right because we have broken God's law over and over and over again. But friends, we are not hopeless. He, here is the good news, that while there is none righteous, you can be made righteous by faith in Jesus. Jesus has already kept the law, fulfilled the law. The good news is that faith in Jesus makes you righteous. 
It makes the unrighteous righteous. Praise God for that. Let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 onwards. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the Bible teaches that only ones who are justified are the ones who are saved by faith in Jesus. This is such a good news for unrighteous people. And James says, it is the prayer of the righteous that has great power. Then it means by faith in Jesus, we are made righteous. And when we pray to God, he hears our prayers. And what then characterizes a life of a righteous man is his confession. Therefore, we confess our sins to one another. We as a church confess our sins. This is what the righteous man is. He is the one who depends on the righteousness of Christ. And when he sins, he confesses his sins and continues to rely not on his own righteousness, but on Christ. The righteous one, Jesus, is even now interceding on our behalf so that we would abide in him and pray in faith. James means to encourage us, friends, to not just be hearers of God's word, but also be doers because of the righteousness in Christ. And then when we struggle with our sin, what do we do? And when we are struggling to call to our God in faith, we can call upon God by saying, God, help my unbelief. Help me to call upon your name in faith. We at Grace Church have covenanted and we all the time remind ourselves about this promise. We say we will not neglect to gather together or to pray for ourselves and others. And for that reason, we send out our Grace Weekly in such specific detail, a section totally dedicated for prayers. We every Friday as one body confess our sins. We pray for the unreached people groups every Friday on this pulpit that Christ's name will be made known where he is not yet known. That is why we periodically set aside prayer meetings and times during prayer meetings for prayer. And then he gives an example how to have this kind of expectance. James says, James says as Elijah, he uses about the example of Elijah, praying and God giving the rain. 
The point is here that he's speaking about how prayer is ultimately about speaking what is true, even though it is not seen. A prayer of faith. So James has insisted in this context that a fervent prayer of a righteous person has great power. And he uses Elijah. He doesn't give the example of Elijah as a super special godly person. Yes, he was a prophet of God, but he was a man just like us. He was of like nature, not like the nature, but also like passions. He was a man like us, but he spoke as God told him to speak. He believed God, and he spoke what God led him to speak, and his word was fulfilled. So we see Elijah was a man, in verse 17, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a man like us. He struggled with sin. He struggled with anger. He struggled with depression. And he struggled with people-pleasing. Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed, and God heard his prayers. He prayed. Look at what God did through Elijah's friends. So yes, we this afternoon, we can pray for Pastor Anand being able to come back to UAE. Yes, we can pray for Sister Mildred's full recovery. Yes, we can pray for Sister Nadine. We can pray for Edmer. We can pray for Jamar. We can pray for Eileen. We can pray for the focus week that many would come to Christ. And many more by faith, trusting in God, bringing about his sovereign will and answering our prayers at the time when he sees it fit. And we can praise God also for all the answered prayers. When we are restored after our confession, when a sinner puts his faith in Jesus, because we know it, it is not about us, but it is about our prayers to a powerful God. And then in conclusion, James is calling us to care for one another, not just the elders of the church, but to every member. And so here at the very conclusion of this letter, James is calling us to action. He's calling us to a vigorous care for one another. Remember, James is writing, James' warning is not just enough to be hearers of God's word, but to be doers of it. And here is something for all of us to do. When we see a brother wandering, we can prayerfully bring him back. In verse 19, he says, My brothers, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And when we fail to do this, we confess of our sins to one another and we get back at bringing back the sinner from this wandering so that we can save his soul, so that we can reconcile, restore this brother who is sinning. This means we need one another to watch over us and we need to be on guard of those who are wandering from the truth. And we do that with care, prayer, and a loving pursuit which he says, by doing so, we cover a multitude of sins. 
When a sinner repents of his sin, his sin is covered by Jesus' blood and he is restored to fellowship and communion with God and his soul is secure. This is like their closing statement. This congregation is going through trials of various kinds, if you think of it. They were rich who were tempted to oppress the poor. They were rich who attempted to put their hope in their riches. They were poor who attempted to put their hope in riches. They were poor who attempted to covet riches. Some of them were treated unjustly. Some are sick, some are suffering, and some are outright sinning by grumbling, complaining, using their tongues to ungodly speech. There were quarrels, there were fights, and this is the church that James is writing to. Is that surprising, friends, that they are saints? That James calls them beloved brothers? We might think that, that they might not be Christians, but James the apostle and the servant of Jesus Christ is calling these people who are struggling with their sin as beloved brothers. And yes, we as a church are called to, even when we struggle with sin, that we are called to confess our sins to one another and be reconciled to God and to pray for one another regularly and watch over those who are wandering. And we are at the end saved for our faithful walk with Christ. And this is the wisdom for us here at Grace Church. May we learn these truths and go and live and serve the sovereign king. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in this wonderful letter of James. We thank you, Father, for revealing us your glorious truths from this passage and calling us and enabling us to live by faith, not just being hearers of your word, but also be doers of your word. Help us, Father, to live faithfully and give us grace, Lord, even as we submit to your prayers and supplications, our praises, we would also be watchful over one another. Help us, Father, to not have this mindset that we are not our brother's keepers. Help us, Father, to understand that we are covenanted to one another in Christ. And we are called to confess our sins, pray for one another, and walk in faithfulness. Give us this grace, Lord, and bless us as we long to live in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.